Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Nuts and Bolts Church Planting Webinar brought to you by Exponential and Passion for Planting. I'm Sean Cronin, your host. I get to serve as the training lead for Church uh, for Passion for Planting. We get to train, equip, support church planters in many different ways. Um, and one way is by hosting this webinar. Um, and today we're going to be talking about money and fundraising. Uh, Raising Capital to Fuel Ministry. And with me, as always, is my courageous, good-looking friend, co-worker, boss. Okay, maybe I'm brown-nosing a little bit. Um, Patrick Bradley. Patrick, welcome to our webinar. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Exciting to be here today and love hanging out with church planners. Uh, and what a super practical topic. You know, if you're a church planner out there in the field, you're uh, driving to appointments to meet with people, maybe you're going out to meet uh, city leaders, or you're visiting somebody in the hospital, or, you know, you're going places and driving around, maybe you don't think about stopping at the gas station to fill up your gas tank as part of your mission. Um, but it's super practical. And if you don't do that, you know, you don't get as much <laughs> meetings and things done. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about today is super practical. How do you, how do you fill up the ministry's fuel tank? Yeah. So Patrick, uh, I should just brag on Patrick a little bit. I was at a church leaders retreat, the Carolina movement, a bunch of church planters this past Monday and Tuesday, and they are all singing the praises of Patrick Bradley because him is their project manager and all the stuff that he does for them. Um, they were like, man, Patrick Bradley is a hero. He's a hero for church planters. And so um, we, we're, we're, we're grateful for the fact that Patrick is continuing with us, being our director of operations. And today, another hero of ours is Phil Ling. Phil Ling is another friend of ours who comes and helps train our church planters in fundraising. Um, and so, you know, knowing this is a topic that a lot of church leaders and all church planters typically have to wrestle with. We wanted to bring him in to have a conversation with him about this topic of fundraising. So Phil, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me. Good to hang out with you guys as always. Cool. Very cool. Well, Phil, um, before we kind of dive into the topic of fundraising, let's just get to know you a little bit. Um, kind of what's your background? What's your story? Who you are? How'd you get in this whole business of helping churches and church planters raise money? Um, kind of a in, in, the, in my DNA, my dad was a church planter in Columbus, Ohio. Um, that's where I was raised. He was one of those weird guys that stayed in the same place for 30 years, so I never had to move around as a kid. Uh, went to college, came out, and followed the example of, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to plant. And so I planted two churches in my ministry. The one was in central Kentucky, near where I went to college. And then I received the call to go to Seattle, Washington, and I spent 10 years planting a church in Seattle. And God bless this, a lot of people. Um, I remember having vivid conversations with my leadership team. What if God keeps giving us people, but no money? <laughs> what, what, what do you do then? So uh, I, that's, that was my journey until 20 years ago. And I was challenged by a guy named John Maxwell to come work with him and help churches fuel their vision with intentional generosity. I spent a number of years running around the country with John. I slid over and spent some time, which is a whole conversation with Franklin Graham and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, reorganizing re, uh, them for the future and how they fund their ministry, not direct mail, which they kind of invented, but then embracing online and all those kind of things. But they were kind enough to let me uh, sign on as my first um, partner and have my own shingle. And so that was 12 years ago. So all told, last 20 years, I had been full-time working with churches and faith-based nonprofits helping them raise money, worked with 850 churches and helped raise over a billion dollars. Just about any place you can name, little ones, big ones, all in between. Um, blessed to be, I, used, I tell everybody this, I used to be part of a cool church, used to be part of an exciting church. Now I get to be part of hundreds of exciting churches. Nice. Uh, so, you know, the topic of fundraising, it's sometimes a, uh, uh, a topic that some church planters would kind of shy away from, maybe not something that they would love to do. Um, and so maybe you're joining us today and you're thinking about fundraising and maybe you're excited about it or, or maybe you're intimidated by it. But we would encourage you, if you've got questions along the way, to put them in the chat. 
Um, cause we can talk about fundraising for a long time, but if we don't answer your questions, um, this probably isn't going to be too fruitful. So, um, as we go along, please throw any questions that you have in the chat so we can hopefully address some of those. And so, you know, when we think about fundraising, Phil, um, you know, most ch church planters, you know, we have a lot of different perceptions about it, but sometimes we think, I know for me in my experience, I thought raising money was maybe one of the least spiritual things to do in church planting. And I've kind of had to realize maybe, maybe not, maybe it is more of a spiritual thing than I give it credit to. Um, but why do you think it's so important for church planters to kind of have a, a realistic and a, and a biblical perspective to fundraising? Like, how do you help church planters gain a, a healthy perspective towards fundraising? Yeah, this, first of all, it, it's, uh, I've been on that side of the table. So I was a church planter guy that had to raise the money too, you know, and I had to figure out how in the world we're going to do this stuff. Uh, everybody can sit around the table and dream dreams. Everybody can have visions. Everybody can say, man, God's laid on my heart to do this in this place. That's cool. At the end of the day, somebody around that table is going to say, but how do we pay for that? And there has got to be some kind of a process that has got to be, in my opinion, my humble but accurate opinion, uh, that it's got to be biblically, biblically based. I think it's one of the biggest misconnections in ministry today. Uh, we did some survey work and talked to 4,000 churches and how they raise money and where their money comes from and what it looks like on paper, what I call a blameless autopsy. One of the things we came out with in North America and the average church, 45% of the people that give, give less than $200 in a year. So if in an, in an existing church, if 45% of those that do give you money, doesn't even count those that come and don't give, but those that do give you money, give you less than $200. And collectively, that whole group only gives about 1.5% of the total income for that church. So there's got to be a huge disconnect that's happened for decades and generations. So my grandmother, who would have tithed at Sixth Avenue Church in Huntington, West Virginia, until she died, whether she liked the pastor or not, that, she's gone. And the generation is gone. And so just as we're experiencing the dynamic of the largest wealth transfer in the history of the world, it's happening right now. And we have this group of people that have come along that really have occupied our churches for a long time that are much more uh, consumers of a product than necessarily stewards of that particular ministry. So then you come along as a church planter and say, okay, I'm called to the city. It's very unchurched. I feel called to plant a congregation here. How you raise the funds to plant it will very much set you on the course for how you will fuel that ministry going forward. It's the same muscle. It's the same skill set. So whether you figure it out now or you have to figure it out later once you have planted, how many churches fail because they just run out of gas? And it's the same thing. So I think most of us have a misconception in our mind, at least I did, that fundraising is asking for money. That's incorrect. The only pastors that like to ask for money eventually go to jail. <laughs> I don't think that's it. It's not how clever you can ask. It's not, you know, how bold you are. Every now and then I get somebody that wants to be real bold and like, well, I'm going to ask this guy for 50 grand or I'm going to ask this guy for a hundred thousand dollars. Well, do you even know enough if that's even realistic? I mean, how, how do you have a clue? You probably don't. So I think there's got to be much more of an intentional plan that says, how do I build participation? How do I invite people to participate for the very first time? How do I lift them in that participation so they grow closer to what it is that we're doing? And if you do it, I believe this, I'm a, I'm a, I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid. If you do this, in a, an intentional, biblical way, it not only fuels your ministry, it will jazz you. It'll be one of the cool things that you enjoy doing because it's all about casting vision. So long answer, Sean, to your question. I think most of us dread, us, dread it because we don't understand it. We think we're going door to door to sell vacuum cleaners. And I have a friend, Pete, from years ago that did that and was very successful at it, but Pete's an odd guy and not very many people are. And the idea of having knocking on doors, cold, cold and asking people for stuff, uh, going through, you know, having a list of people, I've got to make 50 phone calls today and ask for money. No, you've got to raise friends before you raise funds. And so part of the intentional plan is how do I begin that process? And it's not how cleverly or how boldly I ask for money. If you can get that separated, then I think you start listening. 
But right now, what happens is it's very cool to think, I'm going to hire some people to help me out. I'm going to build a launch team. I'm going to select a city. I'm going to start studying about what's happening in that city and what's what the needs are. All those things get you all jazzed up, which is cool. And not, okay, but how am I going to pay for that stuff? And, and I, I believe, like I said a minute ago, I really believe how you lay the foundation, how you put the train tracks down now to launch are the train tracks you're going to run on for the next 20 years. All right. Wow. You, there, so there was a bunch of, bunch of things you said in there that I just have to ask about. Um, so you talked about the research that you did, kind of talking about how there's you know, people aren't giving like they have in the past. Right. Um, I think you have, I think you have a resource out there that's free that people could go to, to get more of that research. And what do what that be? Shameless plug, shameless plug. Uh, go to our website, which is the giving the And there is a book that we put out that is free. You can download thousands of leaders have done so. And it's from that research It's what we are noticing on the changing dynamics of giving in North America. Now, I don't know if this is international. I've been, I've worked with some churches outside the United States, but I know that this is North America church and it's spread. Our research is spread across 35 different denominational backgrounds. So it's not, it's only one slice of, of evangelical church. I mean, it's, it's everybody experiencing the same thing. And it, it shows what I think is a coming tsunami. So I think that what we're going to wake up very quickly and COVID honestly the whole pandemic COVID thing, all that it did was accelerate and exacerbate what we're seeing. It, it's just put it on, on a hyperdrive. I, I'm working with a church in the Midwest that in, within their denomination, they've already identified 26 churches in that district that are not going to reopen after COVID. That they have just, that was the last nail in the coffin. Wow, and that's crazy. Now, well, and I know that if you had a, a restaurant, a bar, anything and you went into COVID and you were already struggling, then you're probably not going to make it. Same thing for churches. Uh, but so as we look at the church plan, understanding the dynamics of how people give you money, why they give you money, um, how do you communicate with those folks? How do you challenge those folks? That's a muscle you got to develop. And if you don't develop it when you're planting, then you're going to be really, really sad in five or six years down the road. Wow. Okay. And yeah, so the book's called the, uh generosity or the giving tsunami yeah the giving tsunami the giving tsunami yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, i buried the lead forgot the name of the book okay yeah the um you mentioned the greatest transfer of wealth the greatest ah. transfer of wealth just unpack that very quickly what do you mean by that well, very- and anybody that's listening to me can google it and because it's not a, a churchy thing it's not you know this, this is not just Filling's view on the world. It's anybody in the wealth industry, anybody in, in retirement industry, and they start looking at the, the aging population. So a couple of things happened. Tom Brokaw wrote about the greatest generation. Remember that old book? And those World War II. My uncle Everett was at Pearl Harbor. Well, Uncle Everett, he's gone. He hang, hung on to his 90s, but he's gone. Well, that group lived longer. They've held on to the wealth a little longer. Get those baby boomers like me then receive some of that, that inheritance, those, that wealth that they were able to work very hard and build up. And I think there's a couple of dynamics. I have a friend that does a lot of speaking in the corporate world, and his whole niche is that it's the first time we've had four generations of Americans alive at the same time. So when you're selling a product or you're building a church or whatever, and we talk about intergenerational, it's actually four generations. And that dynamic. So that wealth that's being transferred from greatest generation, baby boomers, and the baby boomers go on down. It's the biggest that it's ever been. And at the most narrow of time, you know, it's all coming together at one time. So you've got who built that wealth and who's going to have that wealth in the next few years going forward are two different groups. What they held uh, to, to, you know, what they held and gave honor to look at the Bible colleges, universities, uh, Bible camps, uh, parachurch ministries, all things that were built from like the 1940s to the 1980s. Well, that generation are the ones that are dying and passing that wealth off. And then you see those folks that got it say, well, that's not necessarily my priority. That's not necessarily where I am. And what I see and observe, and this is my my humble but accurate opinions, what I tell my son, my humble but accurate opinion, (laughs) is the folks that are receiving it we as church leaders have created in the last 20 years, great consumers of a product. They come because we pre- create a product at church they like. Not necessarily tithing because they are great stewards 
or they have a biblical understanding of giving or anything like that. And so their allegiance is very tenuous and it doesn't take that much. Another dynamic that we experience in, in research is that if you're in a, a, a populated area, a lot of the people that are attending your church or maybe feel called to your church plant will actually feel an allegiance and a connection to more than one church in your area at the same time. So it's like a smorgasbord of spirituality. And so maybe I've got a kid that's plugged into a youth thing over here. Maybe my spouse is going to some kind of a Bible study thing over here. Maybe I'm interested in this church plant that's popping up. And so now we got split loyalties. So when it comes to where I'm, I'm funding and so forth. So if you look at, say, why is it that 45% of the people that give money give less than $200 in a year? That has nothing to do with how rich they are. You don't have to be wealthy to give $200 spread over a year. So it has to do with how connected I am to that vision, to that, that ministry. So when you're planting the church, same thing. It's like, okay, how am I going to raise the money for this? And how do I start putting in good practices? So that's, that's why I'm called to it. I, you know, like I said, I've been doing this 20 years. I've got two, before COVID smacked this around, I had two and a half million domestic miles flying around. And I like working with churches. The reason I still do it is because of my passion that this is a blind spot for most leaders that will have a lot to do with whether they succeed or fail. So you, you had mentioned that fundraising is not asking people for money. You know, the only people who ask people for money, you know, pastors, you know, they, they end up in jail. So, so what would you say then what is fundraising? Uh, okay. So and it's all semantics and, and, you know, our little way of, of spinning and of talking, but, I think that uh, leaders cast vision, all right? uh, Generosity fuels the vision. It is vision-driven. People do not give to what they do not understand or don't feel a connection with. So most ministries that struggle financially don't struggle because people are afraid to ask for money. They struggle because their vision is fuzzy. I am not going to give and give sacrificially to what I either don't understand, I'm not really clear why, or I'm not convinced you can pull it off because you haven't really unpacked it and done your homework, or it doesn't hit me. It's not, you know, example, uh, remember when the generosity, or generosity, when the uh, hurricane hit and was it, it was one of the Watt brothers, I can't remember, it was JT, which, which Watt it was, that was playing for the Texans. And he did his little uh, social media platform says, hey, man, let's all just text some money and raise some money for, the, for this horrible thing that's just happened with this hurricane. And he ho- honestly thought he could, if he could raise a million bucks, that'd be huge. And it was millions and millions and millions of dollars because it was a clear, crisp and compelling vision. So on the front end of fundraising is spending a lot of time on the vision saying, is my vision for planting this church, is it clear? Does it make sense why we're doing it? If I'm planting a church, and uh, I just talked to somebody, where, what were they? They were planting a church in a small Midwestern city. And I'm like, how'd you end up there? You know, why? Explain that. Clear. Is it, is it clear? Is it crisp? Can you explain what it is you're raising money for and what it is you're called to do quickly? If it takes you forever to unpack it, it's not very clear. So is it crisp? And then is it compelling as when it's ended in the, in the length of a tweet from the football player, you raise millions because it's compelling. It's like, hey, I could text $25 and I could help somebody that's dealing with this. So with your vision as a church planter, spending all your time figuring out what it is that God's called you to do, have you ironed that vision out so that when you sit down and vision cast with people about funding, it's clear, crisp, and compelling. Raising dollars is all about vision casting, but it's vision casting in the right room with the right target. And I can unpack the room stuff for you when you want me to. Right. Yeah, I know two weeks ago, we were actually on with Will Mancini and we were talking about vision and, you know, he really challenged us to think about, uh, yeah, making that vision super crystal clear. Because I said, you know, a lot of church planters have, they're full of vision and he would say, well, they're maybe not as full of vision as you think they are, right? You know, it's very, if they have vision, it's not very clear. It's not very crisp, um, not very compelling um, as a result. Um, and it, 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 it lacks um, that power that's going to get people to join their launch team, but also obviously join their financial team as well. Yeah, I, and well, first of all, Will's a smart guy. I, I think because, you know, if he agrees with me, he's a smart guy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I think 
there was a book, uh, George Barner wrote a book a hundred years ago uh, called The Power of Vision. And you can probably find it online. And it's a small little book. It's easy to read it's a, a very quick. And for me, he helped articulate the difference between mission and vision. And the way that I interpret it, the way I walked away with it, is that every church planner I talk to, every church leader I talk to, they have a mission. We want to make fully devoted followers of Christ. We want to reach people that don't know God from a goose and introduce them. You know, okay, that's, that's mission. Vision for your church plan is how are you doing that? How are you going? So articulate for me how you're going to come to this town and find those people that don't know God, introduce them, help them to build that relationship and disciple them. That's much more to it. If you can do that in a compelling way. So what's part of the compelling way? Is there a need? You know, is, is the place that God's calling me to, the, to launch this church, is this a glaring need? We need this. So when I got called, I was planting in, in Kentucky 100 years ago and out of college, young guy, didn't know any better. An association hired me to plant a church, did it. God blessed it. But man, I'm in the Bible Belt. And you, know, there's, there's, you can't swing a dead cat and not hit another church. You know, and, and you, there's one across the street that's mad at that one. I mean, the little town I was in had first, second, third Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got the call to go to Seattle at the time, it was like, okay, this is interesting. At the time, Northwest, very unchurched, not a lot of churches of any stripe and a lot of, of, of pagan life, just trying to find their spirituality, but not God. And so it's like, okay, there's a, there's a, a vision of a right field. Now, how am I going to do that? So the, the vision of the church planter then is that, okay, if I'm going to be take my little family, move across country, go to the Pacific Northwest and plant this church. What? How? How am I going to do that? How am I going to find those people? What is the, the, the niche that I'm going to feel? When you go to raise dollars, it's very similar. So I'm, I'm painting the picture of my vision. I'm casting my vision. The person you're talking to more often than not is a believer. So you're not asking them, hey, you need to help me because you're, you want to be a good Christian. Or you need to give because you're giving to God. They are, may already do that. What you're really asking is you need to give to me. So what they're trying to see is, is this a good investment? Is this a bang for the buck? If I'm going to give my spiritual dollars somewhere to affect the kingdom, is this vision and this person the one that I want to invest with? It's like you're raising money, venture capital for a new, a new uh, business. And they're looking to see, all right, I, my bucket's only got so, many, so much resource in it. Is this where I want to put that, that bucket? I believe a lot of church planters have not unpacked that enough. And then it's a matter of the mechanics. And we can get into the mechanics too. Is like, okay, now maybe I've really worked on my vision. I've got that clear, crisp, and compelling. How do I share that? Do I just flop a website out there? Do I start doing massive, you know, digital social media posts? You know, what, how, how do I raise those dollars? That I think is a big deal too. Yeah. So uh, I want to welcome anybody who's maybe joining us late. Um, we're on with Phil Ling. We're talking about fundraising. And um, so far, we've talked about the importance of having a clear vision that you get to communicate. Because one principle that I've heard, uh, you know, Phil share many, many times is that money follows vision. It flows to vision. Um, I, I just, oh, and also if you have any questions along the way, I also want to remind everybody, if you have questions along the way, feel free to put them in the chat. We'll hopefully get to those. Uh, another thing that I just heard you say is that people give to people, not to projects. It seems like you just said that people give to people, not to projects. Um, so before we get into the mechanics, can you unpack that a little bit and how does, how should that principle, um, affect the way that we, um, you know, fundraise and, and ask oh. people to contribute? Yeah, it, it's just, it's an important thing to remember. We've talked about the idea of, uh, what, as far as people giving to, to people, not projects, we raise friends before we raise front funds. Raising dollars is a relationship. So you and I are beginning a relationship. So part of that is in, all right, in that initial relationship, it's built upon trust. The first time that I ask for you to support something financially, you're, you're trusting, hey, you know what? Phil makes a good case. It sounds like it's, it's needed. I'd like to participate in this. Here's some, a few dollars toward that. The first gift that you give is never your largest. It's going to be one of your smaller gifts because now I'm going to stair step that trust level. What did Phil do with that? So your communication with me after I give you the gift and showing what that gift has been able to do, that starts to stair step that relationship. So I'm, when I 
when I say that people give to people, not projects on the front end with church planters in particular, you're doing this on a promise. You have no track record yet. Now, once you start this and you go down that train for the rest of your ministry, you're going to build on that track record, whether it's good or it's bad. But on the beginning, it's a trust primarily on relationship and people. So I'm trusting this person I'm sitting across the table with, or I'm communicating via Zoom with, has really a trustworthy individual that's laid out a good plan. It's almost like you're going to the bank and you're asking for a loan for this brand new business. And he's looking to say, does this look like it will make it? You know, does this look like he's really done his homework or her homework? Same thing. And so that, that's what I mean on that. I, I don't want to beat that horse too much, but that's what I mean. It's, it is a relationship building exercise. Cool. All right, let's get into the mechanics a little bit. You know, let's put ourselves in the shoe of a church planter. Um, let's say, okay, where do we start? I know we talked about, you know, clarifying your vision. So let's say we've, we've got a pretty clear vision. Um, we're figuring out how we best communicate that. But what are some initial first steps after that in order to start um, raising money to fuel this vision? So I think that they're having the appropriate conversation in the right room is, is the key. So part, and when I say rooms, I'm, they can be metaphorical rooms. So the first, there's a big room conversation and the big room conversation is our biggest platforms. So maybe if I'm getting ready to launch a church, it's my electronic platform. It's my social media. It's my email list that I'm building. It's all these folks that I'm trying to start a conversation with. And that conversation is all about you want as many names as possible. You start with what you got, your Christmas card list, and you start building. Everywhere that you're invited to speak, and a friend lets you come into his church and speak or, or lead a small group or something, you want to walk out with email addresses, with text numbers. You want to have people that begin conversations with. Because remember, we're raising friends before we raise funds. So yeah, love offering when you get invited in is good, but that's not the big deal. The big deal is that I walk away with 10 new families that I can communicate with that are interested in what I'm doing. So the big room conversation is participation, and it's about building the list. So everything you do electronically, everything you do when you're invited somewhere to speak and you're networking is you're trying to build your list bigger and bigger and bigger, more people to talk to. Second is that, that medium-sized room, which are those self-identified niches of people. So maybe that's geographical. Maybe now I'm starting to target zip codes and areas that I'm in. All right. So now that, that's, a, that's a self-identifying group that I'm going to begin a communication. It could still maybe be a lot of electronic communication, but it's, an, it's a different group. It's a subset that's over here. Then the third is my one-on-one -on -one conversations. These are my cups of coffee pre-COVID, my Zoom conversations post-COVID. You know, it's, it's who can I sit on eyeball to eyeball and have a conversation with? Where And we can talk about where those names come from, but always understand when it comes to raising dollars, the most money comes from conversations in the smallest room. So the most money does not come because I had clever email exchanges or because I had a great website. Yet yeah, those are important, but they don't necessarily generate the biggest financial source. So where I'm going to do that and where I think when you start looking at your particular time as a, a church planter and saying, okay, where am I going to delegate my time? My time as a church planter has to be delegated very heavily to leading leaders. And leaders can be financial leaders as well as positional leaders. And so as I develop my financial leader list, that's my one-on-one -on -one list. And I would always say, okay, of everybody that I've got on my big list, on my email stuff, everybody I've, I've accumulated. Now let's start finding out who are those people I can have a conversation with, the personal conversation that have some financial capacity to do something. So that's the one-on-one -on -one conversation. Over half of what you raise is going to come from that. Probably closer to 65 cents of every dollar is going to come from that. What I see sometimes with a lot of church planters is they put a lot of energy into website development and stuff like that, which is great. Social media put out really good posts and things like that. And they send emails like Glore. I get emails constantly. My inbox is crazy, like I'm sure yours is too. The old uh, spray and pray method. Exactly, exactly. And, and what does it do? More often than not, this ticks you off. It's like, okay, come on. All right, you're, you're killing me. Uh, it's, do you have anything new to say? Is there anything really here? And there's always going to be an ask. There's this one group, I won't tell you who it is, uh, but 
I, I am tempted to open them when they come, even though they bombard me three times a day uh, because of the, the crazy way they always ask. Uh, so my theory is it's not very successful. That's why they keep doing it so much. Uh, the, when, I'm, when I'm doing the big platforms, I'm trying to make an easy way for you to trust me with a small amount of money one time. So just like text to give or whatever, it's like, let, let's try to get $25. Let's try to get an initial gift from somebody. Because if I can get an initial gift, then I can begin a conversation and a relationship with that person and they will grow. My one-on-one conversations on the other side of that spectrum, those are the ones that have already started to bubble to the surface, either because of relationship or because of some giving that they've already done as we initially got started. And now I'm having those deep dive conversations where they can move the needle financially and they do have the capacity to do that. So there are two different conversations. The one that I think that most church planters have not developed, in my opinion, is the one-on-one conversation, which is the one that's going to generate most of the cash. Yeah. And um, so you said the most money or the largest gifts come from conversations in the smallest rooms. Right. Um, What advice do you have? So, you know, you got that list you're ready to start making appointments. Any wisdom on how do you schedule those appointments? How do you get people on the calendar and, and start right. scheduling those appointments? Yeah, it, it's, it's as much art as it is, is, is science and it's tenacious. Uh, so let, let's pretend right now that everybody we're working with is their all their platforms are doing great. Their networking is doing great. They've got maybe a thousand people on email list. And now from that, they've, they've uh, boiled down to 40 or 50 that they'd like to have a, a conversation with, to really have a, sit down and have a conversation. With those 40 or 50, if it's geographically feasible, if they're in an area, of course, you want to sit down eyeball to eyeball with them. If it's not, then you're going to be doing some phone calls and, and Zoom conversations. So that, that, that's going to, of course, affect the dynamic. I would start with an, a simple email invitation that suggests times that you could talk and says, hey, you know what? Sean, I, I, I'm so glad you expressed some interest in what we're going to do. And I'd love to sit down and unpack that a little bit and tell you some of the things that we have lined out and maybe even some challenges that we're experiencing. I know you're busy, but if you could carve out 30 minutes for me, I'm looking at you know these dates and give them some potential dates so that they can go back and forth. Here's it, it and I keep it brief like that. If you're on part of a church planting team, and you've got somebody on your team that can help you, maybe an administrative assistant, I would introduce them in the email and say, you know, um, John works with me as my admin, and John's going to really work hard to make sure that I can have some time to talk with folks like you. Uh, he's going to follow up with this email and see if we can come up with a date. The reason I like using that, that second person you introduce in the email is it lets them chase them because there's going to be a lot of chasing. I think a lot of church planters, when they start this process, they get discouraged because everybody just doesn't immediately respond and doesn't immediately say, oh, yeah, man, let's sit down and talk. This is great. Uh, they, They don't. Always remember this. As a church planter raising the funds for your ministry, it is your responsibility to chase them, not theirs to chase you. And so the simple email, whether it's introducing you that you're going to follow up with them to book the appointment. I love somebody else booking the appointment. I think that it makes it a lot easier. It's a a delegation responsibility, somebody that's really tenacious. That person that's doing it, I say, hey, listen, I don't care if you got to send them 27 emails, if you play phone tag with them, whatever you got to do. The reason they're on this list is because it's a warm list. This is not cold call. So they, they are interested in what you're doing. They probably have already given you a small gift toward that. It's just life gets in the way. So don't take that as a rejection. It's like, all right, got, got to have that conversation. When I have that conversation, if, if it's in person, I like doing that in a uh, don't do it at their home. If at all possible, I don't like going to their homes. I think it's harder to get people to say yes, to let you come to their home and take up their time for two or three hours because they're, fear- they're afraid of that, that it's going to eat up my time, that I've got to entertain you. And so let's, let's not do that. If you've got an office set up in that city, do them at your office. People that think that's great. Uh, if you need to go to a third part, a third location, like a coffee shop or something, which is going to be harder and harder because every Starbucks I'm into says this, this table is not 
<laughs> not allowed to be occupied yet. But, you know, but there are some that are opening up. So find those, those places because you don't want it to be noisy. You want it to be where you can have a private conversation. And you're going to about a 45 minute conversation over a cup of coffee. This is not like something that goes on and on forever. I think there are a couple of things that you need to have in your little hands when you go. Uh, one is I think you need to do some homework and say, all right, if, if I need $100,000 to launch this church, and I'm just throwing out numbers, but if I need $100,000 to launch this church, how many gifts of what levels do I need to make that happen? And so do some yeah. homework and say, you know what, I'm going to need. Uh, one gift of 10,000 bucks. I'm going to need two gifts of 5,000 bucks. Break that down. I'm going to need tons of gifts of $50, $100, whatever that happens to be. Unpack that, do that homework um, and uh, put that on a very uh, small little, what I call a giving chart. It's just like, here, here's a little giving chart. Uh, if you email us uh, at thegivingchurch.com, I'll see if we can get you an example of one. Um, I'm, I'm double duty here. Okay. I need to hit a button. Uh, so the other thing that I think you need to have in your hand is, and this is key. This is, I know this is a simple thing, but it's key is what I call a save the date card. And a save the date card is lying out the dates between when you're talking to them and when you're going to launch your church. So if your church public launch is already set and it's going to be in October the 16th, 2021 or whatever it happens to be, then have every date on that card lined out that you're going to do something. Maybe there's events, maybe there's gatherings, whatever it happens to be, because you're trying to recruit them to pray for it, be part of it if they can, uh, see what you're doing. So, and the most important reason you have to save the date card, there's got to be a line of demarcation that builds a sense of urgency. If you don't have that, then you're talking to me and you're saying, hey, Phil, really want you to help us with this, uh, this church plant. And I'm listening. I think that's great. And we'll hope you'll make a generous gift. Okay. That's cool. I'll pray about it. And there's no sense of urgency. When do I need to do that? Is that today? Is that a year from now? And most people don't do what has not been drawn in the sand where there's a line of demarcation. So by, we'd like to have all our funds raised by August the 15th or whatever it happens to be, or we're going to have a big celebration day when all our funds have been committed and pledged up until this particular date, we're going to launch on this date and we'd like to have X amount of dollars in hand by that time. You've got to give me, especially when the one-on-one conversation of that timeline of this is when you need the funds just as much as this is why it's such an important thing to be part of. Awesome. So, so we got some questions coming in from the audience. Okay. Um, and I almost hate to interrupt the mechanics because I know you have a few more great tips for us. Um, but here's a great question maybe around that mechanics is, um, wh what are the biggest things that you've seen that, uh, that people need to not say, especially in these one-on-one -on -one meetings, maybe something they think is a good idea, but it ends up doing more harm than good in this process? Uh, you know, first, it's a great question. I, I, I'm a big believer that, um, all things work together for good to those who love God. So, you know, that's my big, my big umbrella that protects me in life is like, all right, I'm going to pray over this. And I'm going to go in with clean hands and clean hearts. And I may not say it all exactly right or, or remember all the points exactly right, but God can still bless that. So I want to put that over on top of it. But I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make, though, that hinder us is where we come up with amounts of money that we ask people for specifically. There are times when you can do that and there are times when that can work, but most of the time it doesn't. And the, and the reason being is I don't know enough about you. I don't know enough about your circumstance. I could either be giving you lots of guilt because you want to be part of this process, but I ask for something that there's no way you can do. Or I could leave a lot of money on the table. You know, I, I was with a, a guy that one time asked me, he said, how much should I give to this? Literally, he was a very wealthy guy. He said, we're playing golf. How much should I give to it? And I said, I, you know, that's not an answer I can give you. I, you're a generous guy. You've given to other things. People ask you for stuff for nonprofits and stuff. What do you do? I said, what's the largest amount you give? You got $25,000. I said, that's a lot of money for most people. I don't know what that represents for you. So that's, that's the key. So that's why I like the giving chart better. So what I, and I'll give you the challenge that I use, the two questions that I always like to use. But if I've got the giving chart that shows these are the kind of gifts we need, these are the levels of gifts that we need to be successful, and then I have the appropriate challenge, they can find themselves on that card. 
If I don't have the card, then they're just going to try to figure out, I don't know, $1,000 is really generous or $500 is generous or, you know, they don't know, they don't know what it is that's going to make this thing work. Wealth is not, uh, it's not divvied up equally in the world. There are those that have the ability to make a lot much greater uh, gift to this than somebody else that can give 50 bucks or whatever it happens to be. It's all needed. The giving chart with the appropriate challenge. The two questions I always coach my folks to ask. Number one is as you look at this giving chart and start praying about your gift, ask yourself, is this the biggest gift I've ever made to a ministry? Because I'm challenging everybody I have a cup of coffee with to pray about making the largest gift they've ever made to a ministry. And then two, ask yourself when you look at the giving chart, chart and you start gravitating toward a number, is this my number or is this God's number? Because I want everybody to pray to find God's number for them. If you do those two questions along with the giving chart, my experience is you'll have a much better result than trying to figure out, hey, I think I can get five grand out of Phil. I think I can get $1,500 out of Sean. Yeah, I, I, that's the part that I think is a big a minefield. Appearances can be deceiving too. I can tell you lots of stories from working with church planners where they have some you know, deep pocket donor and they, they think they're going to land a, a big contribution and ultimately chase them for months and it ends up not being anything. And then Aunt Sally on a fixed income drops a $10,000 check that they had no idea she had the capacity to give. Yeah, I, I, I can. Exactly. I can give you some great examples. I have one uh, where in their church, they had somebody that owns a major sports team. So major sports team. They were convinced that person was going to give big time seven, multiple seven figure gift. And, and they had been generous in the past. So it wasn't like they didn't give money. Uh, what I kept pounding on is that you don't know how many people are in front of you in the line. <laughs> You're not the only one. You know, not the only one. <laughs> exactly. And, and they ended up making a generous gift that was about a third of what they thought they were going to get. You know, and it's like it has nothing to do. You, you don't know. You don't know what's going on. And then to your other point, I had another one where there was a uh, it was out on the West Coast. And this gal in her 20s, probably 26, 27 years old, who they just thought was this single first job kind of girl working in Silicon Valley, ends up making a seven figure gift. They had no idea she was on a trust fund. <laughs> wow. You know, you don't know. So you can't judge people. You can't where they live, what they drive. Read The Millionaire Next Door. That's the best book ever written that shows America. The Millionaire Next Door, where it's not who you think it is. So the appropriate challenge is much more important than boldly asking for numbers that you have no idea if they're realistic or not. Yeah. So here's another question. Maybe you've already answered this by our current conversation. Uh, this was very specific. Um, this uh guest says um, that they are a denominational leader overseeing church planning and also charged with raising $8 million to start new churches. Uh, they have a lunch next week with a high capacity leader that they think could fund the entire campaign. They're taking that guy to lunch. What kind of tips would you offer that person beyond well, I, what we've already? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know just enough to be dangerous, you know, on your 36 outline, 32nd outline there. So I know just enough to be dangerous. Uh, here's what I would challenge you is that if it's going to be 8 million, I probably wouldn't ask the guy for more than four. Uh, and, and that's if I thought he, if I knew enough about him, I knew he really had the money. I knew he was interested in it. Um, then there are times when you can do that. The reason I would do that, you need a lot more people to fund this, to be successful in your district or denomination than just one sugar daddy. You need momentum that comes from vast numbers of people participating. One of the best things you can do with a high capacity is get them to say yes early to a significant amount that you can use as a match gift for everything else you raise. So what I would want to sit down with them, and I would not be ready to roll out a number yet. I would say, you know what? Here's, here's my need. Always be clear about the need. We need $8 million to do this. I'm really looking for one or two people to be significant early adopters and generous givers that I can encourage with an, a matching challenge to everybody else and every other church and every other leader that I talk to so they can self-identify because they may say, you know what? I'm really behind this. I think I'll do the 8 million as a match. I'm going to give the 8 million, but I would like you to use it as a match. So everything up to 8 million that I'm going to, to do and, and come up with more. 
So that my, my challenge to them that are listening is this, think about the match. Matches are really powerful if you already know you've got a significant donor that might be an early adopter. And, but what I would also challenge you is that what you need to, to start judging is not just did I raise the $8 million, but how many churches and individuals did I get to give toward that? The participation number is what shows me the momentum that is linked to success of what it is you're trying to do. Sweet. That's good, good stuff. stuff. Yeah. Um, so Phil, you know, as we talked about setting up these appointments, I just want to kind of recap, you know, the goal is to be face-to-face. The goal is to be face-to-face. Um, I know some church planters get themselves in a little trouble when they make some of these appointments and they do them over the phone. Hey, can we talk about, you know, this conversation? And they're like, well, why don't we just do it right now? Um, <laughs> So, like, which is why I like to do the email to set it up. Yeah. Yeah. Email set it up. Sometimes I've, I've, I remember a friend of mine who was fundraising to be an FCA like missionary and he texted me, um, Hey, can, can I share with you this thing that God's doing in my life? Um, love to sit down with you about that. And I'm like, Hmm, I think he's going to ask me for some money, but I don't know. Sounds like I want to, I'm interested in this conversation and right. you know, I'll text I text him back. Yeah. Let's, you know, do this next week or something. Um, and so that was maybe another option. If you don't have someone that can do it for you, or, you know, you got people's numbers, um, you know, maybe do it through text or email um, so that you can have that face-to-face conversation, whether in person or via zoom, um, you really want to be able to look at someone, you know, eye to eye so they can really see, you know, the, the vision coming through you um, in a way that's probably not possible just through a phone call. Um, so let, now let's say, okay, we've set up the, the conversation. We're now thinking about how does this conversation go? Like we've got 30 minutes, 45 minutes with this person. What are some things that, can you give us a little framework for that conversation? Sure. sure. So I, I have a, a process that I, I, I coach uh, folks through that once you get in the room, this is kind of the process that you go through. And it's not magic, like, do I say the words just right? You know, Phil said it this way, and so that's how I do it. Now, just get, get it down. It's, it's got to be a conversation. You're going to have a dialogue more often than just a monologue. So you're going to be stopped, interrupted, questioned, stuff like that. But first, I would start with uh, the first thing is to thank them. So you start with gratitude. So step one is gratitude. When you sit down and say, hey, you know what? We're all busy. And I know you're probably wondering why in the world I'm, I'm chasing you down, wanting to have this conversation. So first, thanks for carving out some time. I, I, it's just very gracious of you to let me have 30 minutes or whatever. So start with gratitude. Second, go to answer the number one question they have in their head from the time you invited them, which is what is this about? So they, from the time you get somebody, you send them an email or they said, yeah, I'll sit down and talk with you. What they're wondering is what is it you want? What is this about? Why are you meeting with me? So you want to answer that. So you say, you know what? Uh, you, you know, because of a previous um, correspondence that I am planting this church and you have expressed interest or maybe a friend has talked to me about you, a mutual friend that we have. And so I am trying to talk with as many leaders and influencers as I can about the vision God's laid on my heart. The reason is, A, they will know from that that they are not the only person you're talking to, because that's one of the things. It's like, okay, is this guy expecting me to float this boat? You know, what what is the deal? No, no, I'm meeting with a lot of leaders and influencers, whoever will let me have the time to do that. And yet it'll also say, this is not just going through the phone book. You know, I I view you as a leader. I view you as an influencer. In my world, I always say leaders are influencers. I I use those interchangeably. So we lead differently, but we're all influencers that way. So then three, I would unpack the project. And so I don't care if they've been getting my emails. I don't care if they've been getting or seeing stuff on the web that we put out, posted about our our launch or our church plan. Don't assume they read it or remember it. So, uh, So share the vision, do your elevator speech, share, this is why we're here, unpack it. Maxwell used to always say, vision's a bucket with a hole in it, and it leaks constantly. So you're going to sit down with that person and say, and that's usually the part that church planners get jazzed about, you know, like, hey, this is cool, man. I get to talk about why I'm here. And part of that, because remember we say people give the people, not projects, is why do you, are you equipped to do this? Tell me about your past. 
Tell me about things you've done in the past, in the past things you've led or been a part of, where you've learned. Because I'm trying to decide whether you could do this. You, you could point, pull this off. Uh, I, I can't tell you the number of people I've sat across from me that have boldly sharing plans that I'm sitting there going, there's no way in God's great green earth you could do this. I mean, I, I, I appreciate you're your zealous, but I think you're clueless. So I want to unpack not only the vision of what it is that we're doing and why that's God's laid it on my heart and the homework that I've done that says this is a really good plan, but me too. This, this is why I'm here. Four, I would say, how are we going to pay for this? And say, well, church plants, it kind of like when we're launching a company, eventually that company will create revenue. It's going to sell a widget or something. Well, with church, once we start to gather and people start to belong and start to grow in their discipleship, we'll have revenue sources actually from within the congregation itself. But to launch it, I'm, I'm raising this amount of money over this time period, and this is how I'm doing it. I'm having conversations with people like you. I'm doing a lot of development online and with relationships to build a list of interested people to talk to and challenge them to, to take an initial step in the give and then share that, that, that uh, save the date card. We're trying to have this many commitments and this much money by this date and share that. Give that to them if they can take it home, put it on the refrigerator and start praying about it. I think illustrating the number of commitments, maybe you want 10 churches to participate and 150 people to give or whatever. I think that's just as important as saying I need 100,000 or whatever the dollar is. Because most people can identify with being one of the participants more than the dollar figure itself, trying to figure that piece out. But they need to see, just like you unpack the vision of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, they also need to see you've given that same time and how we're going to pay for it, how we're going to raise the funds to do that. Then I would go into number five, which is simply the appropriate challenge. That's the part that I told you about just a minute ago. That's where I would whip out the giving chart and say, here, I want to leave this with you. Uh, we've done a little homework. And for us to raise this $100,000 or whatever that number is for your church, we're going to have to have gifts in these categories. You can do a little searching online. It's not hard to figure out what the average gifts that you're going to need in order to do that. And the, I need so many large gifts, so many medium size, so many small, and, and leave that with them and, and then ask them those two questions. I say, here, I want to boldly ask you two questions that I'm asking everybody that I talk to. Some I'm doing it face-to-face -face like you. Some I'm only going to be able to do it via uh, a, a social a media connection. But what I'm asking is you to, to pray about making the largest gift you've ever made to ministry, if this is something you're going to participate in. And second, I want you to look at this giving chart and start looking for God's number, not just your number. Because we'll gravitate. And as soon as I give you a chart, I guarantee you're going to look at a number and say, well, I think my wife and I could comfortably do X, Y, Z. But if you start challenging and praying, then it may be a different number completely. And that's, that's God's number. So uh, that's number five is what I call the appropriate challenge that's using the giving uh, chart and that's asking the two questions. And then number six, the last thing that I say is I end with gratitude again. I started with gratitude, I end with gratitude. And I say, first, thank you for the time. Second, thank you. If Maybe they've already given you money. Thank them for that. Thank you for the gift that you've already given. And if you don't do anything but support us through your prayers and talk about us to other people, thank you for that. So churches are notorious for asking and never saying thanks. And so we want to do the kind of the Paul approach. You know, Paul, his, his writings are always like, I was always explaining they're like a sandwich. The, person, the piece of bread is you're great. The meat is, this is where I'm going to smack you around. And then we end with you're great again. <laughs> Another piece of bread. <laughs> and so we want to start with gratitude. Thank you. End with gratitude. In the middle, there's the appropriate challenge. Those the the save the date and the giving chart are just really really helpful. Yeah. So another question from the audience: um, Can you share some thoughts or experience on the transition from dying rural churches into a new plant from the financial side? I I can like I said no just not to be dangerous. Um, I think that you're going to see more and more transitions. But I'll give you an example. I've got. Um, I have three churches that are three different denominational backgrounds, three. You know, they don't know any, each other except for geographically. They're within 100 miles of each other. And they're in northeast Ohio. They all are focused on rural communities. And one of them's 8,000 and strong. The other one's 8,000 and strong. The other one's 2,000 strong. 
and they're in rural, rural areas. How are they doing that? They're looking at those small communities. In one instance, they're going up and down I-77 and saying, all right, in these little towns where all these little churches are dying, why are they dying? Most of the time, what they've concluded, it's not because God doesn't love them. It's not because they don't have good people. It's they've had poor leadership for decades. So as a, a, a larger church that does have some good systems and people in place, they're coming in to do satellites or church plants, but utilizing those dying existing congregations as maybe you've got facilities, maybe you've got a handful of people, let's rebrand, relaunch and do that. So I, I, th I think you're going to see more and more. I also think I was just talking to a guy yesterday in another rural community it, because of COVID and how it's illustrated the changing dynamics in employment in North America. And there are a lot of people that can work remotely. There are a lot of people saying, you know what? Living in New York's not what I thought it was. I don't think I want to go back. And living in the, ma in the massive city, I'd rather go out to a smaller community and do my job. My sister is a vice president of a pharmaceutical company, and she lives in the Seattle area, but she's done her job for the last year remotely. She doesn't have to live there now. It's kind so, of re-ruralization happening. And when that happens, I think that the, the, a lot of these small communities can see a rebirth and those churches as well can see a rebirth. So we do know there, there are a lot of dying churches and a lot of rural dying churches that do have some real estate and they have a handful of people. So maybe some of those church plants or larger successful churches that are doing them as satellites can go in and breathe life into that. I do think that's a real thing. I'm seeing it uh, and I can give you examples of it. Cool. So Phil, you talked about gratitude. Um, and that's one thing we encourage our church planners to do as they're but kind of um, not just in that meeting, but continually thanking their partners and keeping them updated um, with what's going on. And for church planters, sometimes it can seem overwhelming, like, oh, we got to update them again. We got to send them out. What, what would you say is an appropriate level of keeping your, you know, those who are supporting you updated with what's going on and appreciating them? Uh, what would some be advice for that? Yeah, it, it's there. There's no hard, fast rule, and anybody tells you that's not really telling you the truth because uh, it's it all varies. Um, here's what I would say: the the depth of their level of interest and participation drives the depth of my communication. So if I've had a one-on-one -on -one conversation from you and you've given me one, two, three gifts and they've even stair-stepped in the amount of money that you've given, then I think I'm going to give you more information because you've shown I'm interested. I like hearing what you're saying. So I think I would develop a, a second list and say, okay, here, here's that list. This is, this is like my one-on-one -on -one expanded list that I want to communicate with. And I believe you want to communicate with those people at least once a month. I don't think it needs to be long. I think you need to tell stories, something you've accomplished. Mm -hmm. That, it's, that all you're trying to convince me is I've made a good investment and it's a good place to continue to invest. If, if, I'm, if it's that big list um, and I'm leading up to a launch, I think you can still do once a month. So in other words, if I'm going to launch in October public of 2021 and you're already on my email list and talking to me once a month is not too much. That, that, that's not too crazy. If, it's not, if we're not going to launch for a whole year or more, uh, then maybe I, I want to be very careful of that. Now, there are differences. You know, uh, there are some people that this, they hit you six times a day. Uh, and I, I would love to know their numbers of people that are opting out. <laughs> you know, saying, I'd be one. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so I, I do think the, being uh, concise in what you're telling me, telling me a story of something you've done, Never show me a picture of anything that doesn't have a person in it. Don't show me a picture of land. Don't show me a picture of buildings, whatever, that doesn't have people in it. Get somebody, stick them in there because it's the faces that tell the story. It's not just the, hey, we found a, a piece of land or we found a building that we're going to go meet in. That's fine. Show me the building, but show me like some of your launch team in front of it or something. You know? uh, so I, I think that to answer your question, I would do my big list at least once a month like that and keep it concise and keep it small. Uh, the other one I could do more often on my one-on-one -on -one based upon their level of participation, because maybe I'm going to augment, maybe I, they're going to get an email from me, but they're also going to get uh, a, a text. You know, I've got tons and tons of people that you can email and it lays their dead, but they respond to text constantly. 
So uh, it, maybe there's a, a text list as well. Uh, pictures are great. Every, everybody that's ever done anything on social media will tell you that. Uh, so, you know, the, any kind of pictures and stuff that you can use. But I don't send me a bunch of wordy, wordy documents. We have one more question, but Sean, I think that we've run out of time. We have an announcement from Exponential. Yeah, yeah. So we want to announce and share with you about the Reset Summit that's happening May 19th, uh, um, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern time. Um, It's led by, uh, we're thinking about leading um, in a post-COVID church world. Uh, We have speakers like Francis Chan, Max Licato, Craig Rochelle, um, that will be coming to join us. Um, Patch for Planting, we also will be presenting. Uh, we're excited about that. So we'd love for you to come and join us that Wednesday. It's a free online conference. So you can go to multiplication.org slash reset um, in order to register for this online experience. Totally free, interactive. Um, so make sure you come and join us for that. Um, Phil, thank you for joining us today. And just again, where could people get more information about your organization um, resources for you from you? Go to our website, thegivingchurch.com, thegivingchurch.com. You can download our uh, free book there that's talking about the giving uh, patterns and how they're changing. We're launching our third uh, season of our podcast, The Giving Leader with Phil Ling, it is uh, just launched last week. Uh, we've had over 20,000 leaders download that. And so we're blessed. And I've got a, a new conversation with Rick Russall from Colorado coming up uh, next week on that. But you can get all that information at thegivingchurch.com. All right. The Giving Church. Plug from me, too. Uh, for those of you that whose questions we didn't get to, I've just put our email address in the chat in the hub there, planting at church-planning.net. If you want to send those questions in to myself and Sean, uh, we'll get you an answer and, and or get you connected with Phil. Perfect. Thank you, Patrick. All right. Thank you guys for joining us. We'll be back on in two more weeks uh, to talk another, another uh, uh, topic related to the nuts and bolts of church planting. All right. We will see you then.